Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. It's Lainey from the Library Love Fest team. And this episode, I'm so excited because it's about one of my favorite books of the season, and I won't even give it away. It'll be a little surprise, but I want to welcome our editor who's going to introduce the author. And you all know her, Jessica Williams, executive editor at William Morrow. She has been on the podcast before and always knocks it out of the park. So hi, Jessica. Oh, God, no pressure with that introduction. Hi, everybody. I'm Jessica Williams, and I'm happy to be back. And today I'll be talking with Emily Danforth about her upcoming novel, Plain Bad Heroines, which publishes this October. You might already know Emily's work. She is the author of The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which came out a few years ago and was a YA novel. And so this is Emily's first foray into the world of adult books. Emily, why don't we start with you giving us a short description of Plain Bad Heroines? <laughs> uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. There's no such thing as a short description of Plain Bad Heroines, but I uh, I will try. Um, I've been calling it sapphic gothic metafiction. And so if, if you want some math uh, to understand what sapphic gothic metafiction is, it's Picnic at Hanging Rock plus the Blair Witch Project times lesbians, and then and then you sort of have plain bad heroines. So obviously we'll kind of unpack that a little bit more sure, for, sure. for listeners. Um, but just to start off by giving a sort of brief description of the setup and the story so people have a sense before we dive in. Um, the novel opens in 1902 at the Brookhaunts School for Girls, and we have this omniscient narrator who is introducing us to two girls, Flo and Clara, who are in love with each other, and also with this real-life scandalous memoir that was written by Mary McLean and was very popular around this time called The Story of Mary McLean. These two young girls die in the opening chapter. They're the victims of a swarm of stinging, angry yellow jackets, and when their bodies are discovered, Mary's book is there beside them. Then the same book turns up again when another student dies on the property, and people start to believe that the book itself is cursed, and the Brookhaunt School for Girls is closed down forever. Then you have a present-day storyline where Hollywood is making a movie about those deaths and the curse, and they've decided to film it on location at Brookhaunt's, which is now crumbling and abandoned. And things just go crazy from there, and it's sort of hard to tell whether this idea is being manipulated by the film's director or whether Brookhaunts itself is actually cursed. So clearly playing bad heroines, and this is, I feel like is like a running joke in house. It's like a hard book to describe because it is this unique and complex combination of traits. You're using Gothic horror, 
There's a haunted house story. You're incorporating slasher films, metafiction, like you said. It's also a satire of horror and <laughs> gothic fiction. And it's laugh out loud funny. And it's filled with many sapphic romances. And you're using the Victorian direct address. And you have footnotes that are commenting on the story itself, like a running dialogue is happening in the footnotes. And it has period-inspired <laughs> illustrations. <laughs> so, I mean... Can you tell us a little bit about where this all began for for you and then I guess how it developed as you progress? <laughs> when you talk about it like that, if no, I, I just feel like this, I have You're no like, where idea where those, where did that come from? Um, there were so many sources of inspiration, but I think the, the most obvious first one was just a lifelong love of horror movies and horror narratives. Um, it was one of those kids that, uh, was obsessed with urban legends, always wanted, you know, uh, people to sort of tell me their ghost stories. I think I asked you to tell me a ghost story one of the first times that we talked. Um, and then in, in terms of, of horror movies, I think I was, when I was starting the book and I was thinking about what I wanted to write about, um, so often these movies purport to be about something true or the production has pretended that there's some kernel of truth to the story, some true event. Um, and sometimes that true event is supposed to kind of be interfering with production. And so we can think of movies like The Exorcist or Poltergeist, and there are lots more um, that horror fans definitely know. Uh, some horror fans get really offended by this kind of marketing, but it's one of those things that will make me go see the worst movie ever. If you tell me that the set was haunted by a ghost or that there was something kind of malevolent um, involved in, in stopping the production. And so I really wanted to explore that terrain with the book, which is a movie being made at a cursed location with the curse both interfering in production and be ex being exploited by the production. Um, that was the start. Well, I remember, and you and I have talked about this before. I mean, watching The Exorcist as a kid and believing that, you know, it was based on a true story. <laughs> For sure. And also going to see The Blair Witch Project in the yeah. movie theater when it first came out purely because I believed it was a true story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that was such a successful marketing campaign. I, I absolutely thought that it was true for a really long time too. I mean, kind of an embarrassingly long time. And I think there are still some folks who <laughs> will fight you about the fact that they think maybe The Blair Witch Project is true. I hope I'm not crushing any dreams 30 years later. <laughs> <laughs> so you had originally intended this to be your second YA novel. I had, yeah, yeah. And everything we're talking about with this present day storyline with Hollywood making a movie about a curse was that, you know, beginning that early idea that this was going to be your second YA novel. It was, yep. But so when did you realize that this wasn't a YA novel, <laughs> first of all, and that you needed to incorporate a split timeline with almost half the story being set in the past. Yeah. Because basically you've structured this as a movie is being made about a story, but you also need to tell that story. Right, right. Well, I don't, yes, <laughs> I decided I needed to tell that story. I don't know if anybody else felt like I needed to. I um, I was I was sort of dangerously far along <laughs> um, into the YA version of the novel. I mean, you know, like, like, like typical length novel or something, probably 300 pages, when I realized that I, um, I was becoming pretty obsessed with the background of this haunted location. And so, you know, I had maybe set out just to answer for myself, 
what what is the curse of this place so if they're making this contemporary movie this horror movie about a cursed and abandoned boarding school i obviously need to know why it's cursed what's that story but the more research i did into you know sort of this gilded age um, um, you know, boarding school or thinking about Gilded Age women's colleges and boarding schools, the more I, I, I really did become obsessed. I felt sort of haunted by that material. And it, it was, you know, I, I tried to like fit it in in journal entries or I would have these long letters between characters and it was it became pretty apparent like none of that was going to work. I, I, I wanted to have scenes and I wanted to really get to, to live and breathe these characters on the page. Um, and the only way to do that would be to have that, that sort of split timeline between the two. So let's talk about our heroines a little bit, both our present day ones and our historical heroines. Do you want to maybe give listeners a little, describe each of them a little bit for us? Sure, sure. So, uh, uh, one of our present day heroines is, her name is Merit and she's, uh, sort of a, a wunderkind writer who is, um, you know, achieved a kind of literary fame in in her teens uh, for writing a nonfiction book about uh, the Brocant School for Girls, which is this this you know uh, abandoned boarding school, and it the story of its characters. And she's she's now being tapped by production to be involved as as in some way as a consultant on the production um, of, of the movie. So she's one character. Um, and she's also, she's also really struggling with writing her second book. And obviously I was speaking not at all from experience <laughs> when I was channeling that character. Um, so that's Merit. Uh, there's Harper Harper and her name is explained, but she is uh, essentially a 20 something lesbian superstar who's kind of um, both a really talented actress and has found this emerging popularity as an influencer um, right in the era when we were first having our kind of Instagram and online influencers. And she's starring in this movie being made. Uh, And then there's Audrey, whose mother is a sort of 80s movie scream queen. So she's the daughter of kind of horror, cult horror lineage. And she, um, She's going to have a role in this production. She's just a little bit uncertain about what that role is going to be. Her, her, the, the role that she's playing changes really dramatically early on in the book. So those are our three point of view contemporary characters. And then we get to know, um, I, don't know I don't know if you want me to go into each of them, but we get to know uh, two of the teachers and several of the students um, from the boarding school era in 1902. Yeah. Yeah, before we go into our historical heroines, can you unpack the term celesbian a little bit for <laughs> Does us? Does that need unpacking? Celesbian? <laughs> well, like your, uh, inspiration, <laughs> your, your inspiration for it. Sure. We have, I mean, it was, you know, it's interesting because I think there is still this, um, and I think it's probably still true for some actors or some actors who maybe made a name for themselves, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, but when I was coming out and, and sort of, you know, coming of age, the, the sort of, the thing that we talked about was that it was very difficult for actors to come out right in Hollywood. You wouldn't get cast. Um, there aren't that many roles for LGBTQ characters. And so you won't get cast anything. They won't believe a gay character playing straight, right? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and I started to really notice, and this reflects a lot of other societal changes and cultural changes, but I started to really notice, you know, 10, 50, I mean, we'd always had some queer celebrities. I don't, I don't want to pretend otherwise, but I started to really notice this kind of um, emergence of a new 
group of actors and artists and sometimes activists, but that's sort of a different thing who's part of their part of their identity, their social media identity and their platform was right, their queerness. Um, and that was kind of an asset to the way that we knew them um, and maybe was being exploited by marketers. But that was part of how we knew these 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 people was, you know, was was part of their out identity. Um, and so there are a number of them, I mean, of all ages. But yeah, the this lesbian is a mainstay now <laughs> very much in, in uh, the lesbian community, queer community. So yeah, let's go into our historical heroines now. And yeah, tell us about Alex and Libby, and then maybe just touch on the three, you know, historical heroines who are being portrayed in the movie. Sure. So uh, Libby Brocons is, is, you know, sort of the school's namesake, and she's uh, the, the head, the principal uh, of the school, and um, her very good friend, her live-in companion, um, and, you know, I think we'd recognize his wife now, but it's 1902, is Alex. They are college sweethearts. They met in college. Um, clearly, the sort of uh, uh, strings of their relationship works a little bit differently then, but they're, you know, for all purposes, um, wives who run this school together uh, and are trying to deal with a series of horrifying deaths that happen one after another to their students that um, it's difficult to explain. They're very gruesome. Um, two of the students, it's the first chapter, so I don't think I'm giving anything away, but two of the students who are obsessed with Mary McLean's book, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and are you know deep in the thralls of their own kind of crush, are, are killed on the school's grounds. And then not much long, longer later, another student who has a copy of that book is, is killed in, in the orangery of the school, which is an important location. So are two the two women that run the school are trying to figure out how to deal with this and what it all means. Absolutely. So let's dive into what your research looked like a little bit. Like some of the inspiration you pulled from as you were as you were writing. Sure. Uh, so uh, Lillian Faderman, who anybody that's that's read anything about you know sapphic history, queer history, would be very familiar with. Um, she has this book. Um, called Surpassing the Love of Men, which is essentially the history of romantic friendships. And that was indispensable and led me to a bunch of other uh, sources. There's also this um, really terrible um, sort of wonderful advice book from the 1890s for well-to-do, you know, lady wasps called Side Talks with which, with Girls, um, which was enormously popular. And it has chapters on things like, you know, avoiding the dangers of exploring crushes on your girlfriends to the kinds of books a proper young lady should avoid, books like Mary McLean's memoir. Um, and you know, both of those books were really useful. I also read and reread Mary McLean's book, The Story of Mary McLean. It, in particular, I and this was just like that kind of research that's really fun. Um, I read Gilded Age ghost stories and there's, there's so many of those to go around because writers like Henry James and Edith Wharton wrote a lot of them were kind of supernatural stories, creepy stories, stories that involve spiritualism, which of course was sweeping America and Europe at the time. Um, one of the things that I love so much about some of those ghost stories is that there's this real pleasure that's taken on the page in the telling of them. And there's almost a kind of metafictional aspect to that pleasure. It's not it, it's not quite what we would recognize as metafiction maybe today, but there is this sort of authorial intrusion of the acknowledgement of a reader, this sense that like, I'm going to tell you a creepy tale and we all recognize that it's fun to gather and hear a creepy tale. So it's like the setting will be people gathered in a library trying to, to scare each other. Maybe that that's even actually how the turn of the screw opens, right? Is everybody's trying to 
outdo each other with with terry scary sort, sort of stories um and there's there's this acknowledgement of the pleasure of that and i wanted to to mine that and that's part of how the the authorial intrusion and direct address crept its way into my novel that wasn't there at the beginning either i love i mean i love the narrator's voice it's so and how the narrator intrudes at times is mm-hmm quite hilarious, um, especially with the footnotes. Um, But let's also talk about how that sort of direct address ties into Mary McLean. And I guess, and I'd also want to go into a little bit more for our listeners about Mary McLean. So maybe I should just set it up a little first. Um, So I had never heard about Mary McLean or her book until I started working with you on this novel. And it is the historical text that you're utilizing most fully in Plain Bad Heroines. Now I've read the book and I know that her memoir, which was then called The Story of Mary McLean, but has now been retitled to her original title, Mm -hmm. which she wanted to be the original title, which is I Await the Devil's Coming. In 1902, when it was published, it was a massive bestseller. It sold something like 80,000 copies in its first month alone, which is an insane amount of copies, Mm -hmm. even now. She had an almost cult-like following among teen girls, and I think you could speak to some of the craziest examples of that for us. (laughs) But yet, it's like she's been entirely forgotten by history. You discovered her in a footnote on another subject – so do you want to speak to like discovering Mary McLean and how she made her way into plain bad heroines in yeah. such a significant way? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was shocking to me not to know her. She's, she's, she's a bise- bisexual, right. Woman writer from Montana. Like it, it's, it's difficult to imagine getting more in my wheelhouse than those three things, but I hadn't heard of her. And this is, you know, I'm someone who seeks out sapphic narratives and has for decades, um, you know, since college when I was coming out. And so I, you know, I was in my late twenties when I first discovered her. I was reading about Butte, which has this really colorful. It was a mining town in Montana that was the biggest, you know, city by far in the West for a while when at the height of its popularity. Um, and and there are, I, I want to give credit. There are certainly uh, researchers and you know that have kind of reclaimed her in the last decade or so, in particular. Um, and feminist scholars, some feminist scholars, have been aware aware of her. But um, yeah, so just just given the how enormous her popularity was, it was shocking to me. Um, how little I could find about her and how um, the fact that I hadn't, you know, read about her. Um, And then once I started to, I, you know, you were sort of talking about this kind of cult status. I mean, there was, there were cigars named after her. She actually licensed her name to a Butte cigar manufacturer, I think for $500 for, for, you know, the Mary McLean cigar. There were drinks named after her. There was a a baseball team out West changed its name to the Mary McLeans. And and then of course there were these fan clubs, largely teen girls all over the country. There was a a famous case of of a girl in, um, in Chicago, who was part of this, you know, Mary McLean club with some friends who was arrested for stealing a horse. And of course the, the newspaper article makes this point that she was from a well-to-do family. You know, they interview her aggrieved mother um, about what, you know, why her daughter possibly would have done this. And the girl was very matter of fact, she said, I, I you know I wanted to have things to write about like Mary McLean. And so I needed to steal a horse so I would have something to write about. But there was <laughs> just this like, I just love it, Like that's where her brain went. She's like, for sure a horse. I need to steal a horse. That's the thing that'll do it. Um, but they were so devoted. And I think it was, you know, again, it was the sense that one of their peers was saying things on the page that they maybe thought or didn't even dare to think. And she was just doing it um, so boldly, you know, with such um, 
humor too. And I think that's the other thing is that when I did learn about her, I heard of her as this sensation and you can find again, all these, she got, she got enviable new, newspaper coverage. I mean, just her every move for kind of six to nine, I mean, enviable, I suppose is arguable, but her every move for six to nine months was kind of documented no matter what she did after the publication of this book. Um, but what I didn't know was how much I would just love the actual voice and the, and her writing. And so that was a delight too. I mean, I think she's so funny and she really takes these pains to be honest, um, particularly the sapphic content. She tries to find language, right? I mean, obviously she doesn't have the language of identity and sexuality that is available to us in 2020. And so she talks at one point about um, really trying to remove the, her feelings for, for this woman from the you know the kind of couched language of romantic friendships so to say like this is sexual in nature don't try to just say that this is some kind of you know chivalrous crush between us there is a sexual component to it and it's i just find it really remarkable and shockingly contemporary um you know to have been to been published in 1902 so Everything we've talked about is this sort of cult-like fan base, but she was also widely like scandalous and banned mm-hmm. and widely condemned around the country. And I mean, not that we can necessarily compare the two, but as you were working on Plain Bad Heroines, you were also having sort of your own personal experience with having your first book, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, banned. And you've told me that you felt like this sort of combined and did make its way into the writing of Plain Bad Heroines. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's certainly without, which is so often the thing that happens, I think, to novelists, like without me meaning for it to, um, I, I, this idea of bad books got kind of lodged in my brain. Like, what does it mean for a book to be considered bad. Um, and, and, and part of that, yes, was that as I was, you know, because I, writing this book was a long process. It was a years long process. At one point in it, um, as you mentioned, Campost was being removed from a reading list, a summer reading list by a school board in Delaware. And um, there was a really remarkable, actually, and, and sort of brilliant and, and um, deeply generous reaction um, to that. And, you know, there was a bookstore that stocked all these copies of the book and it led to some really cool activism in that town. But I think for me, it just got me thinking a lot about bad books. I'd already been reading about Mary McLean. And, and what do we mean when we say that? Right. We we um, you know, I'd written this deeply personal first book with queer themes and I just had it labeled a bad book. Um, and so I was thinking about like, OK, bad is in like morally suspect, right? Which was sort of what was my book was was removed for this idea that it, it endorsed bad ideas or viewpoints that would be dangerous essentially to, to younger readers. Um, and that whole thing actually is a, is a longer story too because the school board originally said that it was about the quote unquote language in the book, but it became through a freedom of information request, it became apparent it was really about the, no surprise, the lesbian sexual content. In fact, um, uh, there was a... Uh, uh, one of the board members or, or someone that was involved in some of the complaints uh, said that it was basically a manual for teenage lesbian sexuality. Um, so I'm thinking about that, like this morally suspect book, but because I was writing a Gothic novel, um, I was thinking about bad as in the book itself as a cursed object, you know, as perhaps a literal source of malevolence being passed amongst the, the girls at, these, at this school. And um, yeah, what, what had gone from me maybe thinking about writing the Mary McLean book into the book, just that a couple of my schoolgirl characters would be talking about it or wanting to read it really formed itself into this major plot point of 
all this emphasis being placed within the story on this book, this particular copy of the book that's getting passed hand to hand amongst the girls. So you've we've touched on the fact that you did struggle for many years while <laughs> with the ways, all the ways Clan Bad Heroines was developing as a novel. I mean, as you've said, it is a combination of so many things. And then your agent gave you a piece of brilliant advice and she said to you, write this book exactly the way you think it should be written. And then that's what you did. And that was the draft that made its way to me in the fall of 2018 which was just such a perfect time to be reading a New England horror novel and why we wanted to publish your book in the fall <laughs> because of the, I felt like that experience of reading this kind of story in the fall. It's just so delicious. Um, and you had created this incredibly rich world and I had never read anything like it. But at the same time, you're playing with a lot of familiar tropes that I think readers will recognize. Do you mm -hmm. want to speak to some of the tropes you're playing with in Playing uh, Bad Heroines? For sure, for sure. I love how um, earlier, I think you said like you were working on this thing and then I can't remember how you put it. It was, it was your second novel and it was, you said something very generous, like a few years or something. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that was like eight years later, I figured out how to write this book. Um, but no, yes, I, and then you're like, and then it made, your agent told you this and then it made its way to me four years in between or something, you know, but yeah, it did make it its way to you eventually. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are all these things going on, which clearly anybody listening to this is, is going to know there are all these things going on in this novel. And so I, I really wanted to make sure that I, I could rely on a kind of scaffolding that would be familiar to readers. And those gothic tropes work that way. They're so recognizable. Um, even if you don't think you know what gothic tropes are, you will absolutely recognize them. And if you're a fan of gothic fiction, the book has, I think, every kind of gothic trope imaginable, save, um, uh, you know, an abandoned castle. But we get close. We get close to that. Um, we have like a decaying sort of manor house that's got this strange tower um, that, that's got a whole lore behind it. It's super atmospheric. Um, the fog and the mist, the house is right on the water. Uh, there's these dark woods kind of surrounding the property that are hiding things. Um, there's very much a family secret or curse. There's actually a couple of family secrets or curse. There's, as you mentioned earlier, there's so much romance. Um, it's really almost entirely sapphic romance, but in my opinion, that's all the better. There's uh, both damsels in distress, but more to the point, there's distressing damsels, which I think is fun. And then <laughs> there's um, this, this kind of constant question of, is there something supernatural afoot or is there a more rational explanation? And that kind of question for readers, like, can we pin this on the supernatural? Do we want to believe that this is spirits or is there something else going on? And then in terms of contemporary horror tropes, I... Um, I don't think that I've coined this, but I'm, I'm very aware of the trope. I don't know if I can call myself a big fan, but I'm aware of the trope in, in, in horror films in particular, but also some books of, of what I call terrible things happening to women in bathrooms. <laughs> um, and so we've got like Psycho, you would recognize it in certainly The Shining, which is, I don't know if it's a terrible thing happening. It's actually someone being kind of monstrous in a bathroom. So I really wanted to have my own um, woman in bathtub scene, um, partly because in 1902, if you could... Um, afford indoor plumbing you might well have been sort of obsessed with with you know your bath your bathtub and um getting a bathtub so i really wanted to have this creepy queer in every sense of the word bathtub scene um as a nod both to that trope and just because it seemed like it fit there so well and so i think we need to touch on the illustrations here because you and sarah lotman have worked together for quite a few years she came on early in the process mm -hmm. and 
was sort of visualizing things that you were seeing in your head. Do you want to speak to the historical context around the style of the illustrations? Sure. So yeah, Sarah had contacted me, you know, and I think she didn't know what she was getting into. I mean, I think when, when she contacted me, she thought we might work together on an essay or something. And I'm like, I'm writing this and this was really early, as you mentioned, this sort of, you know, haunted boarding school book. And to Sarah's credit, um, she was in immediately and had such great knowledge about the history of the illustrated boarding school novel, um, you know, that obviously were largely written for for children and young readers um, and, and had all these references for what those illustrations might look like and how they paired with the text and what they might do. So we went back and forth a lot. You know, I was sending her like Charles Dana Gibson photos of Gibson girls and she's, you know, pictures of, of, of his drawings and she's sending me back, you know, J.M. Barry sorts of, of illustrations. And before I even really had a large scenes, large swaths of the book written, Sarah was doing some early illustrating. And so, uh, you know, I would sometimes be inspired by the way that she would see a character or she would see something on the page. Um, and then obviously, you know, the, the things that I was writing and sending her would help her kind of shape how she was, how she was imagining these characters and how she would show them. Um, there's also, I think like, it's important to note that like so much of the illustrated boarding school novel is wound with the history of lesbian images um, the language and the messaging in those books was often directly romantic rather than coded. And you would see these kind of androgynous women characters, or, you know, maybe we would call them tomboy women characters engaging in these, you know, situations where they're climbing a rock or they're, you know, they're, they've got a raft and they're, you know, getting ready to explore something. Um, and so, you know, obviously that ties to other themes within the book. Um, and then I would also say that, that so much of this novel is about various acts of looking. It's sometimes, you know, which also plays into the gothic tropes, but it's sometimes from a lurking character who's like spying voyeuristically. Um, but so many of the scenes are built around who's seeing what, when, and how do they interpret what they've seen, um, which is partly my way to get at the current hall of mirrors culture we're all living in, in the age of social media. And so Sarah's illustrations, while historic in nature, they provide another layer to those acts of looking for readers. Well, it also ties into the contemporary storyline with the filming of the movie. Certainly. Yeah. And there's that, there's, yes, yes. The found footage, who's looking at what and yeah, who's manipulating that act of looking. Mm-hmm. So I do think I have to embarrass you a little bit here and talk about some of the blurbs we've received and the experience of reading Plain Bad Heroines. I mean, you um, don't really, you don't have to embarrass me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Can I go get some coffee or something? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's, I'm still sort of astounded every time I read this novel because I'm just not quite sure how you have pulled this all off. It's just really masterfully executed. And I witnessed the development of it and I'm, I still can't quite fathom how you did it. And it's just that sort of book that you want to live inside for a little while. And it's, it's long book but you're so immersed in the world of it. And it's just such a joyous experience that you almost never want it to end. Some of the blurbs that we've received, well, one, Sarah Waters, which we were obviously thrilled mm -hmm. about. She called it brilliant and said it's brimming from start to finish with sly humor and gothic mischief. Joe Hill, who I know you're a big fan of, as we all are, yeah. said that you display all the gothic wit of Edward Gorey and all the soaring metafictional ambitions of David Mitchell and that Plain Bad Heroines is simply one of the best books he's read in the last decade. I've been sending him checks for a few years, so it's nice that that finally 
paid off. <laughs> so as we're wrapping up here, I would love to hear from you. What do you want readers to take away from Plain Bad Heroines? Well, I just have to say again, I'm I'm such big fans of both of those writers, and I'm it's it, you know it's I am embarrassed, but it's it, like it's really touching. I'm I couldn't be a bigger Sarah Waters or Joe Hill fan that they felt that way about the book. Um, I. I think there's something still, even in 2020, there's something powerful about writing lesbians back into history um, when so often our lives and our loves have been coded or sanitized or just more simply lost to time um, because people were too fearful to, you know, to, to put them down in print and keep them on the page or they had to code them, you know, for fear of sort of societal rejection. So I, I do, I do, that is part of it. You know, we get the story of these women who run the boarding school and we get all of the sort of romance of their college crush. I mean, that's, that's really intentional, but I also really hope that readers um, get lost in this world, which is what you were just talking about. And it's curly Q plots. Um, and they take pleasure in that kind of gather round. Let me tell you a creepy tale, even especially with a big book like this. I think if you can kind of sink into it and give yourself over to it, it can, that can be a, a, a real pleasure unto it. Um, and then the cherry on the Sunday would be that anyone who's who doesn't yet know the writing of Mary McLean um, would be introduced to it and I hope seek it out for themselves. Well, thank you so much, Emily. It's been a real pleasure talking. I feel like we could just keep talking for another, I mean, <laughs> hour or so about this book. There's so much to talk about with Plan Bad Heroines. I hope everybody who's listening will request a galley or read it when it goes on sale this October. Thank you for having us, Library Love Fest. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Jessica. This was so wonderful. Yeah, thank you both so much for coming on. I think this is what's perfect about the podcast because not only is this a really unique experience and Jessica hearing about how you came to the book and the, the evolution afterwards and Emily, how you wrote it, I think it it gives us more time to delve into it. I feel like I feel limited every time I talk about this book because it's we've talked about it all the time and every all librarians are all so excited about it, but it feels limiting because any time I have is not enough. <laughs> and so I'm always like, you know, and I'll give a, a, a small bit and then I'll say, you know, that's just like a grain of salt on like a really juicy hamburger. It's got so many layers. You just got to keep going. Awesome. Um, and so I, I love that I can point people towards this episode so that they can really dive in and, and hear really from both of you. I think that this is a book long, but not long enough. And I enjoyed the experience. So thank you both so much. And everybody, please check it out. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.